Welcome to the Sports Playbook, where we discuss solutions to issues that impact sports. I'm your host, Angela Hazlett. Today's guest is Christian Sane, the Director of Golf and Grounds Maintenance for the Country Club of Virginia. Today, we're going to discuss golf course maintenance, keeping it green. Let's get to it. Welcome, Christian. Thank you for joining us today on the Sports Playbook. Thank you, Angela. My pleasure to be with you. Excited to be here. Thank you, Christian. I know you have a wealth of knowledge to share and probably in a subject that not too many people are familiar with, and it has to do with golf course maintenance. I know you're responsible for the grounds at the Country Club of Virginia, which features three golf courses. The James River course, which is used to host a PGA Tour Champions event. The Tuckahoe Creek course is a country course near the James River course. And the West Hampton course is more of a city course used to host the Senior Open of Virginia. So what type of challenges do you face overseeing grounds maintenance for three golf courses in two separate locations? Well, some of the challenges, of course, um, are out of our control, like the weather. Um, it's a very difficult area that we live in, the transition zone, and uh, growing grass uh, here is can be challenging. Um, other than that, you know, uh, just trying to keep it. We're a very busy club. A lot of uh, we have several members, uh, close to probably seventy eight hundred members here at the club. So it's a it's a well used golf, uh, well used country club. So. Just the amount of play we get and keeping up with this schedule and um, keeping things nice for our membership. Those are the big challenges. It does sound like a big challenge. And how many acres of, of grounds do you actually cover? The golf courses themselves probably account for about 350 acres of areas that actually we're maintaining, either mowing grass or taking care of mulch beds or et cetera. And um, then you probably can add another 10 acres and clubhouse grounds at the two locations. So probably 360 acres of maintainable area um, we take care of. Yeah, that sounds like a lot compared to what most people probably have at their their home average home size. So, um, but it, it takes a, a lot of teamwork for to maintain so much land. Can you talk to me about how many staff you oversee? Sure, absolutely. During the season, we. We get up in the um, 80, 80 or so employees to take care of the properties. Um, and this can range from we have agronomists, which are folks that um, take care of the turf grass. Uh, we have uh, uh, two full-time arborists that takes care of all of our trees on the properties. We have uh, grounds managers, horticulturalists, um, and we have folks that takes care of our irrigation system. And also we have, um, you know, uh, five mechanics that take care of all the mowers and the transportation vehicles we have. So we're a pretty big operation with a lot of different specialties. And how many of those are actually full-time year-round employees? We usually run about uh, 55 to 60 full-time folks and um, add, actually add, you know, 25 or so seasonal people to take care of the property. Great. Yeah. And, and, uh, is it a challenge? I mean, the golf season, you're operating kind of in a year-round um, basis or as, as long of a season as possible in, in Virginia. And um, talk to me a little bit about staffing challenges that you might have when the season dies down a bit. Um, you know, it's just like you said, it's very seasonal. We uh, grow Bermuda grass in our fairways and roughs and tees, and we have bent grass on our greens. And the bent grass stays green and kind of grows pretty good bit of the year, but uh, struggles in the summertime. 
the Bermuda grass, of course, loves the heat and humidity, and we have plenty of that here in central Virginia, but it does go dormant when we get our first frost. So, um, you know, when we're cutting 300 acres of Bermuda grass, that kind of comes to an end, um, you know, around the 1st of November, and now it's starting to peak. You can see a few green leaves out there, but um, we really don't get back to cutting the grass, you know, until April into May. So it's a very seasonal with staffing as well. So we rely upon a you know fairly robust seasonal staff to help us to maintain all the acreage when the grass is actively growing. And you you acquire a lot of the staff through an H two B seasonal visa program. What can you tell us about that program and sure. how that helps support your operations? Sure, the H two B visa is a uh, is a governmental federal government program. Um, it's a it's become a it, it's sixty six thousand visas are released each year. Thirty three thousand are available October first, and the other thirty three thousand becomes available April first. Um, you have to apply for these visas. Um, you have to show that you have a need for these folks. So American workers uh, get the first preference during the hiring for these positions. You you have to be attested through the Department of Labor. If you attest and they show you can show the need, then um, you enter your application in the USCIS to uh, hopefully get some of these visas. Now the program over over the past several years has become uh, in high demand. So there's uh, for the second half cap is what we call the second half. Thirty three thousand of visas are available April 1st. There's about one hundred and fifty plus thousand visa requests for those thirty three thousand visas. So it's it's become a lottery and it's very competitive. So um, we've been fortunate enough to fare well in the lottery or or so on and so forth the past few years. But it, it has created another challenge to doing um, doing business here at the club. And is the lottery on a yearly basis? So you have to re-enter the lottery each year, or once you've given given those positions, do you get them back in the, in future years? No, it's the it's a level playing surface each year, so everyone has the same chance each year to 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 win or lose during the lottery. So how do you how do you find uh, fill staffing needs if you're not given uh, access to those special visas? Well, we've you know. <laughs> We we yeah. we wouldn't be doing it if we could easily find folks to fill the positions. But we have been fortunate to find some part time folks, and and you know, of course we do use high school and college kids. It's just the um, seasonality of the job, and you know the high school and college kids are great, but they're going to come to work and start you know mid May to late May, and and have to return to school in August. So you know, like I was sharing earlier, our season starts in April and May, and then we have a very busy season in September, October, and into November in the leaf season. So finding folks to, to do those jobs has been difficult and challenging. And like I said, we do the best we can, but um, without these H2B seasonal workforce, we have a very hard time. It's, it's basically impossible to fill all the positions. So many jobs go undone, and uh, we just have to do the best we can. And you actually have a really special helper that you have a staffer, if you will, your um, border collie, Luna. Can you talk to us about how your dog is kind of an essential asset to uh, sure. do the job? A little so, sideways there, but we can see how cute the pup is. <laughs> she's, uh, she's eight years old. Um, Luna, like you said, is her name. Um, so while we have Luna is that um, we use the Canada the geese to keep the Canada geese off the golf courses, especially over at Tuckoe Creek. Um, it's It has a lot of uh, large bodies of water at Tuckoe Creek. So obviously when they're migrating or you get these uh, ones that don't leave, that just become residential geese. So 
Um, when I came to work here, we had a border collie, then we had a lull of not having a border collie, and the geese really came back in force. So uh, Luna's rider was the first border collie the club had and I took care of, and Luna is, is now the border collie who's in charge of, of keeping the geese off the golf course. She's her because she does have a job, and she comes to work with me every day, but uh, I think she's a little bit more in the goose dog. She's a, she's a sweetheart, so we're, we're happy to have her. <laughs> one of your one of your loyal employees yes let's, she, she is <laughs> let's talk a little bit more about the wildlife that impact the golf course so you mentioned the geese there's other there's hawks um you deer fox talk to me about the wildlife and what do you do to kind of maintain those challenges well of course you know, we're, we're fortunate that we would like to encourage wildlife because I think that golf courses can provide somewhat of a sanctuary, especially in urban areas, for some wildlife. Um, so out here at uh, James River, with the amount of property the club owns, close to a thousand acres, um, that's not undeveloped except for the two golf courses, we find a lot of different wildlife. Um, I guess you would say that uh, I was sharing some stories that earlier last year was a first for me that we had a, a hawk that uh, a pair of hawks nested and. They were actually dive bobbing members because they were protecting their young. So that was a little bit problematic. We had the uh, Gaming Inland Fisheries. We were working with them to try to just uh, figure out what to do in that situation. And eventually they kind of went away on their own and hopefully won't come back this year. But, but between that and foxes, they um, tend to uh, find their dens up around the clubhouse. So that can create some challenges. So you just try to have to manage that and work through the authorities to, to get some helpful advice. As far as Damage to the golf courses, I guess, our, our greatest damage would just mostly be from 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 deer and the deer just, uh, you know, scratching and um, running across greens and causing a little damage, but nothing really too severe to deal with. I, I can understand that. And, um, you know, deer are really beautiful, but sometimes they can uh, they like to get into the greenery or the, the shrubs and things like that. So that can be be certainly challenging. And are there limitations for certain types of wildlife as far as what you can do to manage and control that population? As far as um, what we can plant or, or maintain, um, if that's the question. So you, the, yeah, the wildlife specifically. So the, the animals and whatnot, you know, you mentioned um, having a game and, and inland fishery um, department come in and, and help you with the um, mitigation of some of the, the problems that you might have? Are there certain regulations and restrictions as far as what you can do to control the, the population? I, well, luckily, I can tell you that it's been more of an advis, just an advisory type situation. Um, since I've been here, we've not really had to deal with any trappings or removals. Um, it's been, like I say, more advisory. Um, so, yeah, I know there's a lot of regulations to deal with that as far as what you can and can't do as far as trapping and removal. So we're very mindful of that, especially being in the public's eye. You know, you, you don't want to do anything, a, a misstep. And of course, you know, I mean, I, I, have a, I have a dog and I love animals. So, you know, a lot of times they're just, uh, they just need a little help to get to the right location. Absolutely. Well, let's talk, you mentioned uh, the landscaping piece. Let's get into talking about that. Some of the the landscaping pieces you have a horticulturist on staff to to help with that and beautify the property what's the philosophy that you use um in regards to plants and shrubs so like i mentioned you know part of this first of all part of the selection process at, at the uh 
the course out here in the country, what we would call it out in the country versus the one in the city is, is much different. Um, with the lot, with the animals, deer especially, we have our palette of selection of plants is limited because the, the deer, it's, it's a nice buffet for them. So, but, but most of overall, the, the selection process is we, we try to be traditional and, and when I say simplistic, um, we're not, um, our palette of color that we choose is, is more pastels, not, um, brights, um, maybe not a lot of reds or yellows. We tend to try to lean toward planting a lot of native plants, um, things that are hopefully more um, adapt to the environment. So the input for keeping them healthy is, is lessened. Um, so, so those are the kind of the overall arching goals that we work for. Um, it, it's like when you come to the club, it shouldn't be in your face, but you're going to go, wow, this is very calming and very pleasing. Um, so that's what we're trying to achieve. A lot of bulbs in the spring, but like you see in the picture there, a lot of soft palettes, uh, a lot of daffodils because the, the deer, deer will eat the tulips at James River. So we have to change over to daffodils. So a lot of different things. And, and you see in that picture there, we have a lot of summer annuals, but they're just planted in certain areas to, to provide color and, and enjoyment here. This is um, where people arrive to the club. <laughs> Absolutely. And then you have some kind of native areas as well that... Um, provide a little bit of a buffer. What's the purpose of of the more natural spaces? So Tucko Creek, we try to, once going back, we have three golf courses. So we want it to be three unique experiences for our members to enjoy. And Tucko Creek was like an old farm farmland um, that, that the course was put on. So we was like, you know, Virginia countryside, Virginia farmland. So let's make it, um, instead of just maintaining and mowing a bunch, you know, 300 acres of or 250 acres of grass, let's try to change some of this over to um, what would be more, try to take and plant some native species that would work as pollinators um, and actually reduces maintenance. It doesn't make zero maintenance because those areas do have to be maintained to a certain aspect and certain point, but it does provide different textures. It provides different colors throughout the year, and it also provides a great habitat for wildlife, you know, um, a lot of different songbirds um, and it also animals that provide shelter for um, small rodents that provide a food source for other animals. So it's a really unique situation to be able to create those ecosystems on the golf course that um, that is good for the environment. So it sounds a little bit like that can help with some conservation and sustainability principles as well. Um, I know that's become really important in our society to be thinking about conservation and sustainability. I know um, golf courses tend to get a lot of flack for uh, the perception that maybe they negatively impact the environment, um, particularly with the use of pesticides, fertilizers, lots of watering. So what would you say in response to someone who is um, articulating that maybe golf courses are not the most sustainable facilities? Good question. I'll, you know, I always like to start off with that, that question by saying that, or, or the statement is that what's best for the environment is something that stays untouched. You just let it go back to natural and don't, don't touch it at all. Um, so anytime you do anything to property, then you're going to have some sort of negative impact to something. So now, is that a parking lot or strip mall or golf course? And, you know, people can can make their own opinions on that. I would say that, you know, when I think about our West Hampton facility, it's in the, you know, it's right out, right in the middle of town now, I, I guess you would call it in, in the city of Richmond. So 
if you look at it from high up in the air, you have a green oasis and a lot of concrete and and, and houses and strip malls, et cetera. So it is providing something that's taking in carbon dioxide, it's releasing oxygen, it's providing cooling during the the um, the summertime um, instead of having concrete or asphalt, and also is providing some wildlife um, habitat. Um, now, the diversity of wildlife might be somewhat limited, but you have some something's better than than nothing. Um, now, I would say about the fertilizers and pesticides and chemicals, all all of that said, um, yes, to maintain quality turf, you have to have some inputs or or we'll just have weed fields. But I think that science and technology has come so far and that we've gotten so much better as land managers that we're making better decisions using less chemicals, um, less inputs, less fertilizers. And unfortunately, probably superintendents don't do a good of job telling that story. Um, but but the surveys and the data that's being collected by the Golf Course Superintendents Association is making is showing that we're making great strides in, in reduction of those those inputs. Um, I'd also say like we're very unique here in Virginia and especially in the Richmond area is being part of the Chesapeake Bay and being part of the cleaning up the Chesapeake Bay. There's a lot of regulations to deal with fertilizer applications. Um, we are under a um, nutrient management plan that we have to submit this plan to the state and it's approved and it's monitored that only allows us to apply so much nitrogen, so much phosphorus throughout the year, which does have negative impacts on our waterway. There's no doubt about it. So we're very regulated. We're we're trying to do good for the environment and also provide a good playing service for a game that people enjoy. It is it is recreation. So there is a a um a human aspect to it to the enjoyment of um of the game and being outside. So I think a lot of times that message gets lost as well. That the health benefits of people um, playing on the course and being out in in nature and in green spaces. So, I mean, that's interesting that that you're regulated um, by the the Chesapeake Bay um, area, the, the water protection and watershed area. And I think uh, do the um, buffer zones into the watersheds also help with that plan to to reduce the impact of what gets um, put into the runoff of fertilizers and pesticides into the water? Absolutely. So in any time you can slow water down and give the chance for for water to either um, deposit sediment or or nutrients, then you're going to have a positive impact on on the waterways. So and as you saw in some of our photos, we do have, you know, we try to maintain some buffer. And sometimes a buffer can be even just taking instead of cutting the the grass at one inch, it might be cutting it two or three inches. It's just enough to slow the water down. So, yeah, great. Let, let's talk a little bit about greens because I know this is the primary feature of a golf course is, is the greens and maintaining this um, aspect. Uh, so, what do you have to do to maintain the the grass and the greens on a golf course? Well, that's our, you know, having good greens is like like um, you know, I tell folks that. Or tell folks that work for me and, and young young up and coming superintendents that you know you, if you have good greens a lot of the other things can be overlooked but when your greens are, are not good you're probably going to hear about not only that but a lot of other things but um you know the greens are intensively maintained uh they're mowed daily um throughout the season so here probably starting in april we're going to mow them every day with a walk behind more so you know 
guys are probably walking five miles a day times four guys doing that. So it's it's a lot of intensive maintenance. You're cutting below an eighth of an inch typically. Um, and then, you know, they might get rolled two or three times a week. And we roll them not only to smooth the putting surfaces to make them putt quicker. And then, you know, of course, like we said earlier, there's inputs to maintain your, you know, to keep the diseases from taking over. And and the, probably the biggest thing about maintaining good bent grass greens, especially in, in the transition area, because it gets so hot and humid, is water management. So we'll spend a lot of time each day. If you you will come to visit in July, you would see two or three guys out stabbing um, these little things we call moisture meters in the green, taking readings and trying to figure out areas that we need to add water to and areas we don't need to add water to. So it's not as simple as just, hey, we'll cut the switch on and water the turf tonight. We do do that, but if you get too much water down, you can really damage the grass and kill a lot of grass by overwatering um, really quickly in the summertime. So a lot of intense maintenance goes into maintaining greens, um, like I said, and, um, you know, that's the pride of a club is to have good greens. And you have a computerized system to control the the watering of the grass, is that correct? Yes, we do. Um, all three golf courses, uh, we've upgraded our irrigation systems here in the last 10 years. So that's been exciting for us because it's just given us so much more opportunity, so much more control. Um, we can provide, apply water much more uniformly. So we're seeing our water usage kind of be reduced because we, we're so much more efficient now than what we used to be. And it's the technology is finally, you know, catching up into the golf course maintenance area where, you know, we're having these nifty apps on our phone that we can control the irrigation systems from our phone or in the field that we can reduce or increase the run times on certain irrigation heads. So, you know, we get we have a more consistent product because you don't have a wet spot and a dry spot because we can adjust those in the field. And then hopefully, you know, you're using less water, which is being more responsible. And part of the maintenance requires you to do aeration of the greens, which we have a photo of of that. Um, how often do you have to do aeration? Well, we're in air. This week was aeration week. This week and the next two <laughs> weeks. So, uh, so we get real aggressive, like you see in this picture. We'll do uh, this aggressive um, type irrigate aeration um, springtime. Um, then we'll do what we call like um, mini or micro um, aerifications that really doesn't affect the ball roll. Golfers really don't like this because they're always like, the greens are perfect. Why are you tearing them up? <laughs> um, I get a lot of that. But um, in, 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 in the spring, it takes a little longer for the hill back because the soils are still chilly. But we'll do aggressive in the spring, let's say. We'll do some small holes throughout the, the, the summer months just to kind of keep them open and allow some uh, water to infiltrate through. And then in the fall, we'll come back and do maybe maybe not as aggressive as what you saw in the picture, but, but a little bit of aerification that hopefully we can balance between keeping the golf course playable for our members and also maintaining good golf golf course. And, some, and sometimes you just have to replace the sod, correct? <laughs> well, let's hope not. But, yeah, this was a picture of replacing the sod around some greens. But, yes, un unfortunately, you know, sometimes you get winter kill. Um, the Bermuda grass gets winter kill. Um but a lot of times we're replacing sod just to improve the variety or maybe it just has gotten thin or worn out from traffic and we just go out and instead of trying to grow it back in, it's just better just to get it sodded and move on. 
And you have other projects that, that maybe are more special projects that are create a, a larger impact on the users, like when there's construction in and around the property. Um, and even when you're doing paving of parking lots, can you talk to us about those special projects and how you plan for those for, I mean, you're a year round operation. So how do you, how do you incorporate those and not impact the members too often? So we, we're fortunate to have we created three master plans for our golf courses. We started back in 2011. And so the idea is to have these master plans for two reasons. Number one is to make sure that we have a roadmap so that as boards change or committees change, we can be consistent with what we're providing um, our membership. Um, you know, sometimes we do some big projects, but each year we'll take those master plans and study them and see how we can improve the golf course, maybe it's adding two or three tees, maybe it's accommodating uh, a senior golfer tee, or, or maybe it's a new tee for a longer ball hitter, or it's adjusting a bunker. So we'll look at that and examine that, and then we usually have some general funding to address those items, and we'll try to do that type work. Um, we'll usually close each golf course for a week in the summertime just for doing some verification and some other maintenance to the Bermuda grass fairways. So we'll try to do those projects during a time where it has the least amount of impact on our membership. So as far as the, the other parts that I'm responsible for, I cover all the roadways and, and sidewalks as well at both campuses. So that's a little trickier. Luckily, uh, paving usually usually comes around every 15 to 20 years. This year, we're doing quite a bit of paving, but um, those are things that the planning is very, um, you have to be very succinct about them because we are open 360, well, actually, we're closed Christmas Eve and Christmas Day now, which is great, but um, the other days we're open. So um, both campuses are open, and, um, you know, like I, like I shared with you, the West Hampton campus is kind of the hub of the country club because it has the tennis, it has the um, pools, it has the fitness center, it has a large social component to it. So it's a very, very busy place. So you have to really, really plan around a lot of different schedules, a lot of different, you know, when's the pool opening, what's the season, et cetera. So those can be some of the challenges of working at the club. It's just um, working around those those members and keeping them happy. And you had a, a particular incident where it, it, last year in the fall of tw uh, 2022, where a vandal poured petroleum-based product, maybe gasoline, onto five of the greens. And this was like a month out from the PGA Champions Tour event. So this effectively killed the grass on five of the greens. Um, I, this is a, maybe an unexpected project that you didn't have time to plan or prepare or be strategic about. So what can you tell me about this incident uh, that you encountered? Well, like I say, it was, it was an unfortunate incident that um that that was the worst thing that ever has happened to me working on the golf course. We've always had some vandalism, but this one was bad. And regardless if it was a month out from the DCC, it, it was bad period for our members and for their tournament play as well. Um, I, I will say, you know, during a crisis, it's interesting and, and it's fascinating to watch how the team comes together and, and can get things done. And within five days, all the areas were patched and repaired. Now that wasn't, that didn't mean they were perfectly back to hundred percent playability. But um, by the time we had the, the professionals here um, in mid-October, I knew that uh, when I walked out one day and saw that they'd sit the pin like six feet from an area that we had sodded, 
I felt like, hey, you know, that's that's great. The guys did a good job returning it to, to back to what it needed to be. But, um, yeah, it's disappointing, and it just tells you that, um, you know, we just got to look at things different nowadays as far as how we you know, secure the golf course and how um, how we take care of it as well. So by the time the pros came, could they could they actually see where the patching had been done, or was it um, only perceptible to those who had made the fix? I think it was only perceptible to us that made the fix because a couple of guys kept saying, um, you know, I interact a lot with the rules officials and the rules official be like, well, where's it at again? And um, the players don't even understand what you're talking about. And I'm just like, well, that's a good thing. So we, we like it that way. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's a beautiful, um, beautiful course for the athletes to play on. So um Kristen, we've learned a lot from your perspective of in your role in golf course maintenance. Do you have anything um, else that you think is important for our viewers to know? Great question, Angela. I, you know, I've I've done this all my life. I, I started working on the golf course when I was 16 years old. Um, I can truly say that I've, I've loved every day of it. It's it's a lot of hours sometimes, um, and dealing with Mother Nature can can smack you in the face, but. I would just say that if anybody's out there, I think that um, we we have a shortage of, of, of young men and women who want to get get into you know the, get into golf course maintenance at a professional level. And I think you should look into it. It's it's a great career, and you get to work around with some wonderful people, and um, and you get to be outside, and you have to have you get to have a you get to have a dog. So I mean. <laughs> you, you could bring bring your dog to bring work, dog work to outside. Work. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect therapy. Well, Kristen, thank you for your insight into golf course maintenance. And thank you to our viewers today for joining us on the Sports Playbook. On our next episode, our guests will be Neil Turnus and Sam Ehrlich, who will examine athlete name, image, and likeness through the lens of the First Amendment. We will see you then. Thank you so much for watching Think Tech Hawaii. If you like what we do, please like us and click the subscribe button on YouTube and the follow button on Vimeo. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, and donate to us at thinktechhawaii.com. Mahalo.